welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as the aliens. You know who you are. Uh, I'm in studio today, uh, a dark and mysterious studio, in fact, uh, alone with David Hostetter for now. Uh Dave is going to walk us through a number of uh, this week's news items. I just wanted to, before we do that, let you know that the end of the program to look forward to that we're going to be speaking uh, to uh, writer and director Christine Nelson, who is uh, uh, coming to talk to us about a new film that's going to be as part of the the nature of things on CBC. Uh, It's called Kingdom of the Tide, and it features Sirika uh, Kulis Suzuki. So we're going to be talking to Christine a little bit later about that. But before that, Dave, what's happening in the news? Well, as we speak, uh, military police are conducting a colonial raid in our names. Uh, Yesterday, they were sent into Wet'suwet'en territory in the dark hours of the early morning to forcibly remove peaceful residents from unceded indigenous land in our country's second effort in two years to force these people off the land for the purpose of building TC Energy's natural gas pipeline run by its subsidiary Coastal Gaslink, or CGL. Sadly, it is only the latest in the exploits of Canada's industrialized ignorance machine that has killed, imprisoned, stolen, and tortured Indigenous people and harmed the land since we were able to gain a foothold here. But it is still surprising somehow that in 2020, when the Prime Minister has been promising reconciliation for years, during which a major investigation was made into our residential school system, which concluded that Canada committed a cultural genocide and brought forth a long list of recommendations for proper conduct. And when we have the Premier of British Columbia instituting a UN declaration that, re- that recognizes Indigenous rights to self-governance and self-determination, we're still witnessing a militarized invasion of sovereign Indigenous land with no consent from the traditional leaders of that territory. And all this in order to burn ever more fossil fuels, an energy source which everyone agrees is in the early throes of wrecking worldwide ecological devastation. We are uh, stealing land to profit from what's causing our decay. In terms of legality, the police, of course, are following a court injunction, ordering that anyone obstructing the construction of the pipeline can be removed but they're also dismantling camps of people who are not, in fact, obstructing anything. And it is probably unconstitutional for them to be restricting press access. There was brief talk of meetings between Wet'suwet'en leaders and provincial officials earlier in the week before the raids began, and police came in with their heavy machinery and bulldozers. And since press access is being restricted and legal witnesses are being prevented from entering, the police could even uh, end up harming or co-opting permanent structures set up by the land offenders there, which perform very important spiritual and mental health services for indigenous people of all kinds. The police have already smashed the windows of a radio truck that was facilitating communications between the different camps as well as into the outside world. Fridays for Future TO organized actions as a deputy organized actions at Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland's and Finance Minister Bill Morneau's office in Toronto yesterday. And by 12 a.m. this morning, solidarity actions were being planned or already happening in Abbotsford, Bellingham, Calgary, Courtenay, Edmonton, Godrich, Halifax, Kingston, London, Ontario, Nanaimo, Nelson, Ottawa, Montreal, Rimouski, San Francisco, Seattle, Terrace, Thunder Bay, Tofino, Yellowknife, two in Vancouver, and three in Victoria. Uh, 
There is an action starting right now in Toronto, in Queen's Park, and there will be another one at 5 p.m. at Queen and Bay, and tomorrow at 11 a.m. at Dovercourt Park. So if you're listening to this in Toronto right now, you can join the march happening now from Queen's Park to Christia Freeland's office at Bloor and Spadina, and or go to Queen and Bay at 5 p.m. with pots and pans, or Dovercourt Park tomorrow at 11 a.m. in support of the Wet'suwet'en, which will be a big event with food, hot drinks, and dancing. As of 12 a.m. this morning, Indigenous youth were still blockading B.C. Provincial Legislature in Victoria, having been eventually joined by students from UVic. All entrances to the Port of Vancouver were shut down yesterday, and rail lines were disrupted in several places in B.C. and also in Ontario. And as we uh, actually heard from a uh, co-worker on this show, Megan Flattery, her via rail line was, uh, is currently being disrupted by just such protesters. That's right, yeah. Yes, and, uh, and an Unistoten Solidarity Brigade email from Wednesday said, quote, We are peaceful people who have every right to protect the land that defines and sustains us. We continue to honor our ancient laws, shaped over millennia to ensure a sustainable relationship with the land. While BC and Canada fail to honor their recent commitments to reconciliation and to implement the United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous People, the world is watching RCMP and CGL's militarized invasion of our territories. Thank you to all of our allies who continue to use your voices and actions to stand with us. We are protecting our right to exist as Indigenous people while protecting the land and water for everyone's future generations. An email from yesterday uh, stated, quote, These six people arrested are refusing to sign unjust conditions of release uh, and are being held in custody. An international day of, solidar- of, of action and solidarity has been called for Monday the 10th of February, and you can follow updates on the Unistoten Facebook group to find actions near you or donate to the cause at unistoten.camp. Yeah, so just uh, really quickly before we go into the next one, I was struck um, as I was reading through this for the notes this morning about, you know, just the the thing that flooded into my head um, was all these promises that we've been getting from, you know, a number of governments, but our, our current government around all these things, right? It took them about five minutes to forget about uh, voting reform and all sorts of these other priorities. But there's one thing, which hell or high water, uh, militarized police or not, tanks and guns and, and smashing, like it's not like an invasion. Like the, 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 the police action you were describing to me could have easily been you describing the most recent John Wick movie. Um, like as far as the like tactics that are being employed, because nothing can come between this one goal. And apparently, I think it's just really interesting that we need to put things in context. This isn't just a matter of, well, the law, the law and, the, and the government and the courts all said something, so you know, too bad for you, you lost. Well, rules apparently get bent all the time. It's just interesting who they're flexible for and who they're not. Um, and it's like, make no mistake, this would not happen to anyone else in Canada right? You just wouldn't see it. It's just that for, I mean, I don't know, is it conditioning that we've been just conditioned to accept it? Is is racism even worse than I fear in Canada? I don't know. Uh, but people, for the most part, seem pretty fine with it. That's why it keeps happening. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really causing a major um, international reaction. So we'll see what happens, I suppose. Um, and now the... Uh, Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. Forgive me, Saren, but uh, my notes have uh, 
sort of reacted against me here somehow. It must be the uh, blizzarding snow in Hogtown here. But uh, I'm resorting to my slightly less edited notes now. So if it sounds a little bit uh, askew, that would be that would be the technology. Uh, I, I believe I have your your slightly more recent <laughs> version in front of me. So if there's a question, we'll try and fix it live. Okay, Let's go. Cool. All right, we'll give we'll give it our best. The Trans Mountain expansion pipeline. Uh, has been given another approval by a federal court that has ruled that indigenous consultation has indeed been adequate. The pipeline was originally approved in 2016. Uh, Two years later, Kinder Morgan, the company behind the project, threatened to pull out of the deal because it was ostensibly worried about court battles and activists, causing the Canadian government to purchase the project for $4.7 billion to ensure its completion. It was then appealed successfully in 2018 by the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, who argued that the original process had too narrow an environmental assessment and also failed to properly consult First Nations. There were then public and private hearings uh, given before the National Energy Board, and another Indigenous consultation process uh, was initiated, after which the pipeline was approved again. The Trudeau government then approved the pipeline last June, uh, which approval was then appealed by several First Nations, uh, by, but the courts uh, decided to restrict their considerations to the duty to consult, even though there is still major concern around spills. Uh, the sevenfold tanker increase, uh, tanker traffic increase off the delicate uh, coast and threats to habitat and aquifers, such as that of the cold water band. The original point made in 2018 was that the government had already made up its mind on the project and saw Indigenous consultation as a formality and thus rushed the process and never seriously considered any of the concerns brought by the First Nations living in the path of the pipeline. The government was thus negotiating in bad faith. The court, nonetheless, uh, did not decide that the consultation process should begin anew, but rather that certain issues within the process needed to be tweaked. But it's hard to understand what would be considered proper consultation in the face of the fact that the government already has billions of dollars of our money at stake here. So for the courts and politicians to keep telling us that the pipeline is in the public interest sounds a lot different when it is the public who has been forced to purchase the pipeline. And as Ian Gill reported for the Taiyi in December, in the appeals court, uh, which convened at the end of 2019, that Tsleil-Waututh First Nation argued that in the new consultations, the government took positions contrary to those of its own scientists, doctoring the evidence and their own reports, uh, and, uh, and um, did not admit uh, during consultations that some of their own experts agreed with the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, only providing the full evidence to Tsleil-Waututh representatives after the consultation period had ended. Government lawyers argued that this did not happen and that they weren't obliged to provide those documents anyway. But everybody on both sides agrees, on the other hand, that no one knows enough about what the diluted bitumen will do when it is spilled. The judges nevertheless rejected the appeal, stating that the applicants were arguing that, quote, the project cannot be approved until all their concerns are resolved to their satisfaction. And if we accepted those submissions, as a practical matter, there would be no end to consultation. The project would never be approved, and the applicants would have a de facto veto right over it. And uh, as Ian Gill writes, quote, Now a pipeline is being built. 
uh, still with no conclusive objective evidence that it doesn't threaten the cold water's water, or that diluted bitumen can be cleaned up, or that southern resident killer whales can survive the onslaught of an increase in marine traffic in BC, uh, or that black swans won't descend like lawyers on the Salish Sea. The whole process has been unedifying, other than to reveal that there are no winners from a system that is out of step with the times. The justice system's adversarial nature, Canada's adversarial nature, is the greatest barrier to climate justice that we have, and it renders anything but greeting card approaches to so-called reconciliation null and void. Squamish Nation elected Councillor Kilsalem said they'll continue to fight to enforce their jurisdiction within their territories. The spokesperson for the Tsleil-Waututh Nation said, quote, uh, reconciliation stopped today, and this government is incapable of making sound decisions for future generations. Andrew McLeod quotes for the TAI, the University of Victoria law professor Chris Tollefson, as saying that the severe constraints the courts imposed on their own consideration uh, it made it so that First Nations were denied the opportunity to make their case. McLean's Alberta correspondent Joseph Mark, Jason Markusoff writes, quote, The final true battle will be protest and civil disobedience. With Standing Rock in uh, North Dakota and the Coastal Gaslink Pipeline fight in Wet'suwet'en Territory as likely models. Expect cross-border solidarity <clears throat> to bolster the, protesters, the protesters' numbers as it did at Standing Rock, while the RCMP and government authority respond, response in the gaslink fight may provide a preview of enforcement against Transmountain resistance. The applicants have 60 days to decide whether to appeal to the federal Supreme Court. So I would, uh, I, I, I believe that this portion may not have been in the in the section you were reading here, but this was in your in the copy of the notes that you had. You may have actually, it's possible I just missed it, but I, I want to read from the notes in front of me um, to just re-highlight what I think the most important part of that whole section was. Uh, so now reading uh, from Dave's notes, the judges nevertheless rejected the appeal, stating that the applicants were arguing that the project cannot be approved until all of their concerns are resolved to their satisfaction. And if we accepted those missions. As a practical matter, there would be no end con to con consultation. The project would never be approved, and the applicants would have de facto veto right over it. Now, if you're thinking in the micro, that's a very sound thing, right? You, you, it, It's essentially, it's the idea in science of non-falsifiability, right? You can't, any claim which can't possibly be proven false isn't valid. It doesn't mean it's true or false. It just means you don't you have to take it off the table, right? It's not a useful piece of information. You essentially it cancels each other out. Like if you were balancing an equation, I'm I'm sorry, I know it's early for math and science, but the point here is that like when you're looking at it, when you're looking at it with those blinders on, with your face pressed right up against the glass, that seems like it makes sense. But here's the problem: we're talking about harm. The question is not. Is there harm or not? If you look at the if you look at the actual information, there is absolutely a risk. There's no question to risk. It's just that the risk is unspecific, just like any other type of risk, right? If you go to an insurance company, they measure risk. It's not a series, it's not a spreadsheet, right? If you go to an insurance company, they don't have like a spreadsheet where it's like uh, there's a column with no risk and a column with risk and they check one or the other. No, there's assessments made upon like large numbers, data sets, and you come up with assumptions and and like ranges of probabilities and these types of things. So what they're saying is, what the court is saying here is 
because they can't guarantee you there will not be a problem because they they don't have any safeguards in place and it isn't possible to expect them to have safeguards in place that can guarantee safety you're not allowed to you the fact that they can't do that can't be an argument to use it's not safe the point here though is that all of the law all of the weight is on the people who are the potential victims not to prove that there's a possibility of harm, like you would in any normal situation, but to prove absolutely that there will be harm, which isn't, in fact, an unfalsifiable, ridiculous standard. So this law, this judge in the micro, is assessing the law probably accurately. But what this does is it exposes the level to which the entire legal system, political system, justice system, and the whole thing all the way down has been built up to protect power. And that's it. It's just built to protect power because there's no possible way to get around this. Under this exact same definition ruling, you could get away with pretty much anything. And and that's what the real problem is. And that's why I hope things like this, I, I realize there's not a lot of public hope or support or even anyone really thinking this goes back to court, but I'd love to see it back in court because I'd love to see that argument flipped around. Well, it is considered likely that it will go to the Supreme Court. <laughs> and what see. they should do is argue the opposite. Like you, and you have to give us some idea of how dangerous you think this is. You're the one with the onus. Mm. It's not to me, the victim, to prove that if you shoot me, like how much damage it's going to do. And because I can't specifically tell you exactly where the bullet's going to hit and what lung, what organs it's going to ricochet off, that therefore shooting at me is not a crime. But that's essentially what they're doing. They're just saying because you can't prove exactly what's going to happen, we essentially have to legally act as if there's no danger. And that's obviously nonsense. Hmm. Um, well, now I'll move, I will move on to yet another, uh, yet another similar case. The uh, on the fourth of this month, our uh, federal environment minister Jonathan Wilkinson said that the government might end up delaying its decision on the massive tech frontier mine proposed for northern Alberta, and that they might use the mine as a bargaining chip to get Alberta to do more on climate such as making its own commitment to become net zero by 2050, like Canada has officially adopted, which is a plan so far in advance, it will be difficult for anyone but the most dedicated observers to tell if we're succeeding. Meanwhile, we've already failed to achieve every other goal we've given for ourselves on climate already. Uh, Alberta, for its part, is currently trying to kill Trudeau's federal consumer carbon tax in court. If the project is not approved... Alberta Premier Jason Kenney will, of course, say that it proves that Ottawa is leaving Alberta out to dry. Alberta Premier, uh, Alberta Environment Minister Jason Nixon uh, has said that rejecting the mine will prove that uh, Trudeau doesn't care about Alberta's success, as if a massive, dubious investment in a dying resource is the only thing that will make Alberta successful. Oil prices are currently well below what they need to be for the mine to be profitable, and bad omens in that direction keep coming in, as yet another major U.S. university, Georgetown in Washington, D.C., has announced that it will be divesting from fossil fuels. Regarding Frontier, the CBC reports, quote, a federal provincial review last summer uh, determined that the mine would be in the public interest even though it would be likely to harm the environment and land, resources, and culture of indigenous people. The uh, tech resources has stated that it has all the necessary indigenous approval, but there are still First Nations who are actively opposing it. Tech resources has also absurdly argued that it will itself become carbon neutral by 2050, even while owing and operating one, owning and operating one of the largest oil sands mines in history. 
Boomer climate legend Bill McKibben, meanwhile, has written a scathing article for The Guardian, arguing that our likely approval of the tech mine proves that our government knows and understands the climate crisis and yet can't bring itself to act. He also argues that Trudeau's statement from two years ago, that no country would leave 173 billion barrels of oil in the ground, suggests that Canada is planning to use up almost a third of the world's remaining carbon budget by itself. That's 0.5% of the world population uh, using up a third of the world's remaining carbon budget, Bill McKibben says. Since the tech mine would be operational through 2066, Bill McKibben writes, quote, If an alcoholic assured you he was taking his condition very seriously, but also laying in a 40-year store of bourbon, you'd be entitled to doubt his sincerity, or at least to note his confusion. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I have too much to add on that. I, I like the the, the uh, quotes uh, chosen at the end there. But yeah, I, I mean, I think my, my comment from last time stands uh, really similarly. Um, nice metaphor. You you filled in my spot as the as the metaphor slot there too for me. You took my, my entire job this time. I think, mm. I think I'm good. All right. I think I'm good. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to uh, some Buffy St. Marie. Okay. We're going to come back, and I, I understand you have a few more stories. Yes, I have global news, and then I have a couple very light uh, things about uh, people eating differently. So oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I got all my, my rageful. We'll, t- we'll see, but I think my rage tweeties are gone for now. Okay. Uh, all right, so this is uh, Buffy St. Marie. We're going to listen to Bad End, and we'll be right back with you in just a moment. This is The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5, our wonderful, appreciated community radio partners, and our podcast at greenmajority.ca. We'll be right back. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as... The podcast at greenmajority.ca. We have a few more items of news roundup, and then we're looking forward to speaking uh, about a documentary, which I teased a little bit earlier. We're going to be talking to a friend of the show, Christine, a writer and director about that uh, coming up in just a few minutes. But first, more news. In global news, uh, Democracy Now! reported that six indigenous leaders uh, were murdered and 10 others were kidnapped in Nicaragua last week. Uh, by a huge group of armed raiders during an ongoing dispute over the rainforest between the indigenous community and illegal miners and loggers looking to exploit the, exploit the forest's resources. Also, two butterfly conservationists, Homero uh, Gomez-Gonzalez and Raul Hernandez-Romero, were killed recently in Mexico, whose monarch butterfly reserve uh, has been continually raided by illegal loggers and people clear-cutting for avocado plantations. David Agrin reports for The Guardian, quote, The deaths again called attention to the disturbing trend in Mexico of environmental defenders being killed as they come into conflict with developers or local crime groups who often have political and police protection. Gomez himself was once a logger, but uh, helped lead his community towards a more sustainable economic path in which they would protect the monarch butterflies and attract tourists instead. There is also, of course, the ongoing struggle in Bolivia over the military coup that ousted their indigenous environmentalist President Evo Morales, who remains in exile in Mexico. 
Bolivia is under constant pressure from international mining companies, especially Canadian ones, who want to exploit it for its resources. Bolivia has been harshly sued in recent years by transnational companies for nationalizing its resource control. In Brazil, uh, Jair Bolsonaro has introduced legislation to open major resource extraction on indigenous lands as well as in the Amazon. Uh, some indigenous leaders have called it a genocide bill. It will have to be approved by Congress to go through. And finally, as the coronavirus has killed over 560 people so far, we must remember that destroying natural habitats breeds these kinds of health problems. As journalist Lori Garrett stated on Democracy Now!, quote, all the dangerous coronaviruses that we've seen in recent years, the big ones being the current one, SARS and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is still circulating in Saudi Arabia, all of them are originally bat viruses. Not vampire bats, but fruit bats. And because of pressures we're putting on bat habitats, particularly rainforests, bats are more and more going into areas where there's human occupation, even though they're very shy creatures. Yeah, the um, uh, <clears throat> it's a little bit of a, a portent into our, our documentary discussion we're going to have after this uh, break, but a little bit. But the just the sort of <laughs> the nature red and tooth and claw bit is always really gotten me. And that's sort of my uh, not to sidetrack too long, but that's sort of part of my thing about the Carl Sagan thing is that it's, you know, it's, it's beautiful. And the sort of philosophy of science and, and the, 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 the big high level stuff. Um, but a big part of that understanding is understanding just how fragile and we have absolutely no special place or right to be here <laughs> sort of mindset that comes with that, that uh, real, you know, that, that awareness. And so like, you know, doing, just being aware of these things and, and just being aware of the fact that like everything is fragile and it's sort of all a, a big balance. And game. we have no idea what we're doing. It, we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, that's really the thing. So, I mean, you know, scientists are doing their best to document changes and make, you know, their best educated, you know, doc, you know, information produced guesses essentially about things that are going to happen but the real more of the story here is we don't have a damn idea what we're doing um and to appreciate that there's a complex system that we don't really know how it works and we're just kind of throwing stuff at it mm. um and so you know there part of me wants to spend a minute talking about but i'll pass this week um <laughs> about the we've mentioned it a lot recently with just sort of the the sort of environmental fascism angle of some of the the earlier stories there but also just this thing that when when the you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about like, you know, at some point there's going to be an environment, there'll be something will happen. Right. And that'll get people's attention. And, and the sort of thing is whether or not it will be too late. But at, like at some point we all sort of agree that like, you know, once there's waves in Toronto <laughs> or something like that, something would happen um, where people would, you know, get the message. But you know, what we really have to remember, and I, I'm not trying to turn your lighter story into something super scary or, or anything like that, but you know, Civilization, civilization exists because we're all having most of our basic needs met most of the time. Uh, as soon as there, you know, there's mass food shortages and stuff like those systems that we assume they're going to take care of things are are also really, really fragile. And so that's why people like me get so concerned about like, you know, things that that some people I think think are like, why do you care about that so far outside of the immediate concern of your life? It's because I have an appreciation of the fact that there that's like actually a fallacy. There is no such thing as this doesn't affect me. We live on a closed loop planet. Everything affects everything else. The fact that you don't know that this this butterfly flap creates that tidal wave is doesn't change the fact that it does. 
and we need to operate as if we're standing on a leaf in the in a in a gale, and that just for this moment we've balanced long enough that we fooled ourselves into thinking we're standing up on our own feet. Uh, it's foolish. It's silly, and it's factually incorrect. Indeed. And uh, now we are going to turn to some some nice some nice stuff here. Some very very nice stuff. <laughs> In a quick reminder that we are indeed capable of living differently, we will briefly look at uh, DIY environmentalist Rob Greenfield, who in 2019 was able to grow and forage 100% of his food for an entire year while living in the suburbs of Orlando, Florida, and not knowing all that much about gardening to begin with. He struck a deal with a woman who let him build a tiny 100-square-foot house in her backyard, in exchange for him producing food and water, uh, sorry, food from her front yard, setting up rainwater harvesting and composting. He also grew food in other people's yards and shared his harvests with them. He writes, quote, in 2011, I was living a pretty typical consumeristic life. I never thought about where my food came from until, through watching documentaries and reading, I woke up to the fact that I was consuming the planet I loved with every bite I took. I vowed to change my eating habits and to inspire others to do so as well. Over the next year, I grew over 100 different foods in my gardens. This included dozens of different greens packed with nutrients, sweet potatoes for my caloric needs, delicious fruits like papayas and bananas, veggies like pumpkins, carrots, beans and beets, and herbs and peppers to flavor all of my meals. I raised bees so I could have my own candy shop right at home. Around half of my food came from my garden, the other half was from foraging. I foraged more than 200 foods from nature. I harvested my own sea salt from the ocean, picked coconuts for a good source of fat, foraged my fruit from hundreds of trees, caught fish from lakes, rivers, and the ocean, harvested mushrooms in the woods, and picked nutritious weeds from people's yards. Greenfield also consumed deer that had been freshly killed by cars. So there he's eating roadkill, but it's still good, still good. Uh, he also built 15 gardens for other people planted over 200 community fruit trees, sent out thousands of seed packs, and taught his community how to garden for themselves. He concludes, quote, I've been exploring food for nearly a decade, and I believe that the globalized industrialized food system is broken. This was my personal quest to see whether I could step away from big agriculture and grow and forage every bite of my own food. I saw that it is indeed possible. I'm not saying that it's possible for everyone. In fact, I don't think it is possible for most of us. More importantly, I don't think it's even necessary. The answer lies in community. <clears throat> yeah, I think I'm, I'm really, 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 really appreciative about that last part, because that would have been my comment uh, had it not been mm. made, um, which is only because, right, it's there's people... Uh, uh, a shocking, you know, less than we're led to believe because of the outsized microphone that these people get, um, but more enough that it concerns me that would take that take things like that and say, oh look, right? They like oversimplify it because they're trying to score a zinger or whatever. Um, but hear something like that and say, oh look, here's what the crazy the crazy environmentalists want us all to go back to agrarian times and stuff like that. Mm. And and I think the importance this this sort of act is important to show that the things that we think that we can't live without are really not like it's really not that bad <laughs> uh, and to just to show the like like thing these things are possible self-sustainability is possible not because that's the solution um but because we just to show people that alternatives are viable and and to maybe think of one that is more viable yeah i mean so look at all the look yeah. at all the lawn space we have right so much lawn space 
it's, so much lawn space. As an as an imagination provoking exercise, I'm mm. extreme in extreme approval. Indeed, and uh, so swanky UK magazine staffer Andrew Mayers provides another inspirational tale of conquering his diabetes while at the same time switching to a diet almost entirely retrieved from other people's waste. He had a series of health problems related to his diabetes until he had an epiphany in a hospital, eating the food his roommate didn't want and decided. Uh, after which he decided to eat only strangers' leftover food from then on. His only other calories come from oatmeal uh, with bulgur and other grains a couple nights a week. He writes, quote, For more than a decade I had tried and failed to tackle my morbidity through willpower alone. In the past couple of years, I have been empowered by a sense of protest. I align myself with all those people who wash their clothes and themselves less to save water, who don't fly. It's all about busting consumerist norms. I don't feel enslaved or intimidated by food or the food industry anymore. The tide has turned. Yeah, another another opportunity of, of exactly the same thing. I think really importantly, um, just like just showing that that. Yeah, <laughs> provoking the imagination I think is really important. And yeah. I and I think right now when uh, right now I think we're in a really interesting time when there's a lot of people there there's there's that thing of like, you know, a denial and whatever there's the stages of grief or whatever, right? So it can also be correlated to the <laughs> stages of acceptance. And I think in that middle zone between sort of like anger and denial and accept and grief and acceptance, um, there's this thing where people are like they fundamentally it, it's a space that I think a lot of people exist in for a shocking amount of their lives. But this place where you kind of know that your base assumptions are there's something wrong, but you mm. you haven't found the thing to flip to yet. Right. And just being like, I don't know anything is not like a, a, a place that most people like their ego to be seen being. <laughs> so there's this thing where essentially you've been convinced, but you need to give the person that thing to latch on to to allow. It's like that next rock when you're wall climbing. Right. You just need them to give you just need to give them a handhold. And, and that's why I like stuff like this. It gives people an opportunity to to think about things and go. Oh, okay. There are valid internal. I wouldn't do what that crazy liberal would do, but hey, here's my you know right winger or whatever, whatever, right? But the thing, mm -hmm. like, just get it, get it into your mind that there are alternatives, and and if you have a better idea, let's hear it. Yeah, this is a guy who uh, gave himself diabetes from his obsession with sugary food and so forth, and would furtively eat donuts and stuff to hide from his family in like uh, bus shelters and so forth. And then he decided to do this, and he still eats those foods sometimes, but because he's entirely restricted by this foraging from other people's leftovers, uh, he eats a balanced diet. And one of the things as well, he works in a swanky magazine office, so they often actually leave a bunch of good food for him. So he's in a good position for it because they will often toss out like quinoa salads and stuff. It's, a, it's amazing how many of life's problems are solved by having an amazing job. It's <laughs> just, everything is easier, right? I have a, I have a friend actually who, who told me that they started eating food only from the Eaton uh, Eaton Center food court that other people had left around. And I was like, that's, that's really awesome. But uh, I mean, that, that's a food court specifically that I can see also getting a, a balanced diet from eating other people's waste. Um, and so in my last... In my last uh, beautiful uh, image, we have a uh, news about brown ants. Uh, Patrick Beckham reports for The Guardian that the UK has discovered a new species of aphid that is being farmed for its honeydew by brown ants. The ants herd the aphids. Uh, they bring them to like high and low pastures so they can eat more moss and stuff. They also protect them in tiny barn-like structures on tree trunks made from moss, lichen, and the exoskeletons of beetles. 
all while milking them for the sugary water that they excrete. That's just awesome. (laughs) Yeah, and the aphids in this case are actually larger than the ants. Many ants do farm aphids, but mostly the aphids are smaller. But in this case, the aphids appear to be actually larger than the ants, so they're like cows. (laughs) Once we hit army ants, I'll be very concerned. Uh... (laughs) I just I love some nature. It's just news. nice to hear about ants building barns from the, from the skeletons of beetles to protect their aphid uh, cattle in. They're they're recycling like and reducing and and you know using the whole animal. Oh yeah, um, we oh, could yeah. really learn a lesson. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so here's what here's what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna do another music break. We're gonna come back and we are going to have our wonderful guest come in and talk about Kingdom of the Tide, which is written and directed by our guest, Christine Nielsen, who uh, narrated by Sarika Kulis Suzuki, uh, and uh, is going is t- discussing the magical kingdom of tidal pools and the the coastal transition zone. Uh, we're going to be speaking to Christine in just a moment after we listen to some more Buffy St. Marie. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners, and the podcast found at GreenMajority.ca. We'll be right back. It's a perverse company you work for. They build the past. It just can't last. It's obsolete by design. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. Uh, as I teased earlier, we are in studio once again with our friend Christine. Christine Nielsen, welcome to The Green Majority. Hi, Saren. I'm going to turn up your microphone. That's my mistake. See, I'm doing too many jobs today, Christine. I'm sorry. This is my fault. No worries. Should Let- I speak louder or are you good now? I think we're doing a little better there. I'm going to keep giving you some juice. All right. I think that's. I can bit. I can pump the volume at my end too if you like. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep fiddling here for a second. So apologies, but there we go. So basically, uh, we've had you in before last time. Remind me what what we were talking to you about last time. Last time we talked about Jumbo the elephant. Of course, the elephant. I remember that very much. A little bit of a different topic today. Very. We're going from the very big to the very small in many ways. Um, so let me let me start back at the beginning. Shall I? Uh, so this is Kingdom of the Tide. You are the writer and the director of this. Uh, our narrator and our host, in a way, is uh, uh, Sarika uh, Kulis-Suzuki. Um, and uh, it is exploring the magical kingdom of the coastal... I, I, I almost wanted to make up my own word for it. The coastal intermixing zone. What's <laughs> essentially, essentially, if I can put it high level for having watched it this morning, and then you can correct me, please, was that the, the, essentially this was like the laboratory of biology. I mean, that was sort of the, the effect that I had here. So uh, do a better job. I've told you my emotional reaction to it. Uh, we're looking at, at coastal life, but... Yes, yes. So it the the area we're covering is that narrow strip of coastline that goes along, you know, the coastlines of oceans all around the world. And it's that little piece of territory that's covered by water for half the day and uncovered the other half because of tidal movement. So the creatures that live in this little strip of land are arguably the toughest creatures on the planet because they have to live half the day submerged and the other half of the day, you know, exposed to air, baking in the hot sun, freezing in, you know, minus 30, depending on, you know, which coast we're talking about. And we went to both coasts to study the creatures in that zone. And, and it was one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had. 
And one of the biggest things that, that repeatedly struck me, like I try, when I'm watching these documentaries, I, I always try and put on my sort of, uh, you know, every person hat or whatever. But even, even without that, um, I caught myself on a number of occasions, like you do a shot of sort of the before, if you will. And I'd be like, "That's isn't that dead stuff? Like you showed a shot of the uh, the barnacles or or this or that." And it, it just really struck me that even as someone who sort of pays attention to this stuff and is interested, um, how easy it is to look over at a scene like this and just see nothing. That's exactly right. A lot of the creatures that we feature in this show, most of them are creatures that we've seen on a trip to the beach or a, you know a hike over the cliffs down to a rocky part of uh, the Bay of Fundy. But when you actually look at those creatures up close and personal, which we did with some um, extraordinary macro photography, we had Jack Hines from, uh, he's worked with David Attenborough, and he did the macro underwater photography. When you see the creatures in close up, you see a whole other world. So who knew that the barnacle, which is stuck to a rock and looks really boring to us, who knew that it has the largest penis to body ratio of any creature on the planet? Its uh. penis is like eight times the size of its body. Who knew until we got down there with our macro cameras? <laughs> Wow, and some some really great um, uh, some really great visuals. But that I think that that was the largest takeaway structure for me was the well yes visual that l literal visual as well um, translucent by the way, um, but th just that that idea and you sort of in, that. Uh, that impression, I think, I don't know, you tell me if it was intentional, but very much that impression of like sort of like it was almost like a game of peekaboo with nature where you would you would spend uh, uh, with uh, uh, Sarika would be talking about something standing on a rock. There is another rock. And then the camera would go down. And it's, where did all this stuff come from? What planet are we on? It was very much intentional. And, and it took a lot of planning to figure out, how, like, how do you create that scenario where you start out with with the shot that we all know the shot where we're kind of it's a wide shot of the beach and it all looks like we all think it is and then transport us into that underwater world without it looking fake like basically just transporting us under the water so we did that with a lot of um sort of semi shots where you can sort of see sarika sitting above the water but then you can also see the sea stars beneath and then we would cut to these amazing macro shots of you know who knew that a sea star has hundreds and hundreds of these tiny tube feet that propel it along then it grabs its prey which is usually a muscle rips it apart and then t takes its own, and we show this in, in macro photography, it, 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 it extrudes its own stomach out through its mouth, shoves it inside the muscle, turns the muscle into a gastric soup, and then sucks it all back inside. And we it's show really that. It's really quite terrifying. I mean, I, I it have is, to say. It is, actually. It's, it's sort of sci-fi. Actually, what I learned making this is that a lot of people who make sci-fi have actually used <laughs> the underwater world to uh, as their inspiration truth is stranger than fiction right exactly. so that was i mean so that was an, that's another aspect too is that there was an, a number of times it was the only nature documentary i've seen where it caught me off guard like you know whatever i've seen the david attenborough film with the tiger that kills the and there's some blood and you're in a kid and ooh, 
would ever play. But like it real, like I was like watching this. I was like drinking my coffee this morning, and like some like the teeth, for instance. There was like, can, I don't know if you can the expand on that. Teeth. At oh all. yes, the but limpet. Talk teeth. about the animal, but <laughs> but a, a little bit like perhaps you can expand. There was one question I had from watching it, which was they mentioned uh, something about metal. Is that like literally? Can yes. you expand on that at all? Yes. Yeah, so so the limpet, which when when we're walking along the beach, we look and it's just some little tiny aquatic snail stuck to a rock. Most people don't even notice it because it looks like the rock. But these little limpets are algae-devouring machines, and they keep the intertidal and the ocean beyond in balance. And they do that by chomping algae as they crawl along the rocks. And if you look at a limpet from underneath, like if you see it on a, on a glass aquarium and you're looking at the underside of it, it has these teeth. They are literally like a little gold chainsaw that just goes, that just rolls along the algae and mows it up. Those teeth are the strongest material in the natural world. We used to think it was spider silk. It's actually limpet teeth that are made from uh, a metal called goatite. And they are the strongest material in the world. And, and scientists mm. are looking at how you can reproduce that in a lab to make... Mm you know, cars and boats and airplanes. It's that strong. Bi biomimicry yeah. is uh, one of my favorite subjects uh, at the risk of getting sidelined. The, uh, the the diver suits being reverse engineered from shark skin, the inside of mollusk shells being used as heat shielding on space shuttles. Uh, all of our coolest things we've ever done has usually just been a giant ripoff from nature. That uh, is absolutely right. And who yeah. knew that the <laughs> humble limpet might be, you know, providing us with that next generation of sure. amazing material. Some, some kind of shoe that has like a microfilament that lets you walk on walls like you know i mean it sounds silly and i say it in a silly way but like really quite seriously and and if you talk to these people and that's really why why i appreciate that the the real people who really have their nose up against this stuff can really tell you like it's not just like an ooh neat this is cool it's a there's some really some things that we should be learning here if we could figure out how to do this imagine the possibilities like even the even just from a pure corporatist like nature is to be exploited point of view it's it's so foolish to be just ignoring this stuff yes. I, I it makes me insane I'm sorry Christine yeah no I, I'm I'm totally with you but it's also uh, it's also just really cool to yeah. look at it's it's an astonishing world I, I'm a diver uh, my husband and I have dived in some of the most remote places on the planet and I have to say I was humbled to see the things in my own backyard that are actually at least as amazing as things I've seen in the Mergui archipelago or Indonesia or, or wherever I've dived. Yeah. Well, and so one of the other things that I was very noticeable to me, having but maybe maybe just jumped out at me as someone who sort of serially watches these films, but uh, it, it jumped out to me. It was notable that there was no mention of humans as an impact, as a cause. Like there wasn't that. There's sort of almost like an obligatory line at the end of nature documentaries. Sometimes, not that that's literally what this is, but you know, just within that meta category of like you know, and this population will be extinct in 26 years, or yeah. you know, that, or something. There, there, that seemed intentional as well. Can you speak about? Yeah, that? it's that's, it's a very astute observation, and it was a thing we wrestled with a lot. We wrestled with it in the writing of the shooting script. We wrestled with it in the field. Uh, we, in fact, had it in the shooting script, and we did some interviews in the field about sea star wasting and how it might be caused, at least in part, by warming oceans. There's no question that uh, climate change is affecting these creatures. But we, we had a lot of conversations about it, and 
decided that this was going to be a film about the wonder. And hopefully people will watch this film and maybe some people will become interested enough in maybe one of these creatures, maybe a few of them, to sort of follow up on things like sea star wasting and, and other, you know, possible uh, climate change uh, subjects. But it was... It was ultimately a deliberate choice to just make this a wondrous world because it really it is Sarika Kala Suzuki's story. It's yeah. it's it's reliving the magic of her childhood, and now as a marine biologist, learning what really makes these creatures tick. Yeah, and I think I mean for for me it was the the hope that that I was thinking that people would watch is that I would you know is that people would have the same reaction essentially that I did, which was just to get a little bit of a reminder that things are way more complicated. <laughs> Things are way more complicated than we appreciate, um, and and just like uh, so, for instance, uh, maybe we'll I'll use this as a segue to to get you to talk about the Bay of Fundy a little bit more specifically, but with the shrimp, um, and just that idea of you know when we're like so the, I started with that sort of summation that my overall feeling of this zone was that it was kind of like a biological blender, and I found that because when we're looking at the shrimp, it's not when you think about like. I used to listen to a lot of crazy interviews with people and there's people like having arguments about like creationism. We're not getting into religion, I promise. But just that, so having people go through the arguments of these basic foundations of where life came from, I've heard a lot of this explained many, many times, many, many different ways. And it was one of those things where you almost get this impression that like, it's sort of this thing in your head where it's like, okay, I could see theoretically how that could happen, but it still seems like so improbable. You five minutes watching those shrimp. You're like, oh, this is mile, like hundreds of kilometers of beach with like kilometers deep of space of just solid mixing where the, the it's, it's, it's ocean for half the time and it's land half the time. You tell me something isn't going to evolve in that. Like, uh, like, sure, there are there's still other questions, but like, it was just like, well, it's so obvious that like somebody go watch this film and be like, okay, yeah, biology is a real thing. Evolution is real. Yeah, we're done here. Yes. That was sort of my reaction to it. I, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but regardless of that, please use that as a segue to talk about the Bay of Fundy. About the Bay of Fundy, <laughs> yes. So the, the Bay of Fundy, as, as many people know, has the, the highest tides on the planet. So what that does in the place where we, uh, where we were filming the mud shrimp, that what that means is when the tide goes out, you have many, many kilometers between the shore and the sea at low tide, just kilometers and kilometers, like, as you said, hundreds of kilometers of mudflats, which to the naked eye, or even if you're just sort of, you know, walking around in it, it just seems like a big, it's just mud. And who'd want to be there? But if you stand and you listen, you suddenly hear a sound like Rice Krispies in milk magnified. And then you look and you see all these little bubbles in the, in the mud. And that is millions of mud shrimp. Hmm. There are 60,000 mud shrimp in, in, in some places. There are 60,000 mud shrimp in a little patch of mud the size of a beach towel. Wow. So imagine, imagine like if you don't like creepy crawlies, imagine creepy crawlies, 60,000 of them this, in a spot the size of a beach towel. But my favorite line was, yeah, you think there's nothing here, but if you stop moving, you'll see, you'll feel something on your leg. That was a great line. Yeah. So, so, so literally as you're walking along, you do stop and, and Sarika and our scientist, um, Diana Hamilton from Mount Allison University, they stop and yep, then you can see these mud shrimp. And we're not talking, they're not the size of the shrimp we eat. They're the size of, you know, slightly larger than your pinky nail, basically. But there they are. And, and they have these antenna that are, you know, almost 
half the size of their little bodies, and they kind of pop up through the mud and start crawling up your leg. It, and was, your a, boot. it was a little bit Cthulhu-like, just a, <laughs> yeah, just a hair a Cthulhu-like, bit. just a bit. And what they do, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. So these massive tides come in, and when the tides come in, they come out of their little burrows, and they swim around, and then the tide goes out, and they dig themselves under the mud because that's the only way they're going to survive. In the summer, the mud can heat up to... 30 degrees Celsius on a, on a hot day, maybe hotter than that. And in the winter, it can go down to, you know, minus 10, minus 15. So they have to survive that range of temperature, and they have to survive underwater and under mud. It's, um, it's amazing. And, and they are the, uh, one of the main food supplies for lots of birds, including the semi-palmated sandpipers that fly just by the hundreds of thousands from the Arctic to South America. And the Bay of Fundy is their fuel stop. And they gorge out on these mud shrimp, and then they, then they head on to South America. So it's, um, it's th- that particular story shows how the intertidal zone is kind of an interface between worlds. It's an interface between land and sea. I was it almost it's it's not the right image, but I, I landed on an imprecise image of almost like a respiratory system. Uh, the exchange of the oxygen and the water, the sort of mixing of the two ecosystems in a in a reciprocal, almost osmotic uh, osmosis type fashion. We're exchanging materials. It's it's almost like a symbiotic relationship between the biology on the land and the and the biology in the sea and and the intermixing of it. Absolutely. Um, so. And if you look at, I mean, there are certain times of year in certain zones where all those worlds come together. And a, a good example is on the west coast with the the herring. Uh, when the herring come in to spawn, they come from the deep deep ocean and they come in to spawn and that happens in the spring and when that happens you have whales from the ocean you have bears and wolves and otters you know mink everybody merges in this intertidal zone seagulls they come from air land and sea basically to feed on the herring and their milt and that's one time and there are a few times like that but this is the big one this is this is like the Serengeti in the intertidal, basically, this time of year when the, when the herring are, are spawning and everybody comes in for the feast. It's, it's an extraordinary thing to see. They, they, uh, just to wrap up, we're uh, unfortunately got about a minute and a half left, but the, the last image that I want to ask you to help our audience uh, envision uh, in, in future of watching this, hopefully, um, was the uh, sea... Uh, it's an impossible word to say. Anemone? Yes. I, yes. I was darn close. Anemone. Anemone, exactly yeah. right. Oh, For 12 man. years, I couldn't say cinnamon instead of synonym. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> now you're confusing me. <laughs> true story. Uh, I could not say the word synonym. I could only say cinnamon. Anyway. Um, and then was it was this idea of the the uh, this war. I really loved that section where it was sort of, uh, we're all the same species and we're just doing our thing. We're feeding on other fish. You know, if an, uh, an observer came by, it was sort of like, you know, if aliens came down during one of like a, a political or racially inspired war, they'd be like, well, why are you people fighting? I can't see the difference. <laughs> right. And it's just that idea of like, oh, this one community and then this, this, this violence and you sort of see like, why would they attack each other? But then what's the point, I guess I was trying to in, in spite on that was that as you watch, it all makes sense. Like oh they're just they're they're reaching out as far as they can and attacking anything in arms reach because they're then gonna like lean back and they've created a safe space for themselves like you just it all makes sense it all washes over you and I think that was really the 
the thing that I that I'm the feeling that I hope people have is just sort of this like the wonder at, at nature, but also just like oh yeah, this like this totally all like. Of course it works this way. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope people feel that way, too. You're talking about the aggregating anemones That's who right, yeah. uh, have basically they reproduce by cloning and they form these gigantic colonies clinging to rocks. And when one colony starts encroaching on another, they they go into battle and there are actually specific uh, members of the anemone colony that uh, have toxic tipped harpoons. They're the warriors and they lash out across this no man's land between the rocks at each other until one colony's warriors um, die or are injured or float away. And then, then the tide goes back out and then they sleep. And then the tide comes in and the war continues. And those wars can go on for decades or hundreds of years between colonies. They're blood feuds, really. Yes! It's Game of Thrones underwater. <laughs> Christine, we're out of time. It's always a pleasure to have you. You can watch the film yourself. It's called Kingdom of the Tide. It's premiering on CBC's The Nature of Things Friday, February the 7th, which is today live, if you're listening live, 9 p.m., uh, 9.30 at Newfoundland time, also streaming on CBC Gem. Right now. Right now. So you can go ahead and do that. We'll have links and everything on the show. We, are, uh, we have to get off the air now. Christine, always a pleasure to have you in the studio. Always a pleasure, Sarah. And uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, for the audience, thank you so much for being uh, part of our show today. Have a good green week, and we'll see you all real soon. Thank you. 